CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Uh, this is George. I'm in Alameda at Mark Georges' house. But I've known you for quite a while now. It seems like we met maybe like... Uh, back in the early days of uh, what was what we were referred to as the Spockmark scene. I don't know what other people would call it, but uh, yeah. Uh, 99, 98, 99, 2000. Around that era, around yeah. That era, yeah. And so at the time, so for background for sake, uh, at the time you were playing in Monopause, mm-hmm. which kind of in a couple of years, did it, would you say it evolved into Nungpak? Or you, is it kind of our separate entities? I consider them separate entities yeah, they're kind because of separate. they're so different, yeah. but it did evolve into Nunpok. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the same players. It was most of the same players, and uh, Monopods have been going on since 1993. Really? Yeah, we're yeah. our 20th anniversary is next year. Actually. Are you going to do something for it? I can't say, I can't confirm or deny. Oh, this is like a confirm or deny. So anyway, has it always been you and Peter and then your brothers in it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Peter Conheim and I and my brother joined after our first show. Uh, There were a couple of other people that have moved to town. There's a guy named Mike Shizuru who we worked with closely for years. That was the early monopause. Brian Hall. um, Brentley. And then Brentley eventually. I never see Brentley. No. Is he around? He's he's around. He does other bands. He does. Well, he's right. legendary. Uh, he's in Three Day Stubble, right, 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 Three Day Stubble. Um, which still exists. One great project he did in the in the early '90s was the I think he was bass playing and guitar playing on Heavenly Ten Stems. Oh, okay. Which was like the yeah. We, uh, I, we've talked about this before. The grandfather of Nungpak, actually. This, uh, really. Mark Davies of Thinking Fellers uh-huh. and a host of other people doing uh, their favorite Chinese and Indian cuts. You know. Yeah. Um, that they've been collecting and, and doing reinterpretations of those. That was really great. Yeah, maybe maybe you should sidebar on that because I do remember at the time the first thing I'd ever heard about that band was uh, I'm trying to remember someone I don't I might have been my friend or some or a friend of a friend at UC Berkeley throwing paint on them. I think at the Chameleon mm-hmm. when they performed. Were you at that show? No, I was at the show a week later when they played in plain clothes, just t-shirt and jeans. It was the last show they'd ever do. Right. So do you think that they... Well, they used to dress up. That's part yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. They dressed up. You know, they, they they played the parts like Lala in the band who was singing uh, dressed up in sort of Chinese opera mm-hmm. style. And uh, that was very unfortunate what happened to them. Um yeah, I think. Do you think it was just an overreaction? I think like, it was uh, overreaction and also a, probably naive and, you know, probably had to do with a lot of people trying to get into their own racial self-discovery and and then it was portrayed by somebody in that group as something that was potentially racist and then everybody right. attached onto that and said, "Well, let's get them," you know, was, right? You know, it's a witch hunt. But, but what, was it just one person or was it a group? I didn't even know. I thought it was just kind of a one person. Maybe agenda. it was one person's uh, threw paint on them. Was crusade, it like a, maybe like and a paint balloon. Or I, I should talk I have to a them video. about it. I mean, I've seen, I, oh, I've really? watched it. Oh uh, man, it's it's really sad to see because well, first of all, these people were just doing you know what what any of us do and what we did with Nungpak as well. It was it was really 
evident that they were paying homage to this music and that you know we've all been in bands it takes a lot of time to whip songs into shape on yeah. that level especially highly orchestrated pieces like that yeah and to like learn a cover in a language you don't know it's is, like, uh, it's remarkable level of the thing. and they did such a good job of it that anybody who who had witnessed them could tell that they were just in love with the music yeah, and I think this was like, you're right, it was like also the early 90s mm-hmm. where I feel like there was this sort of, I mean, it's still, it's still, it's definitely still like, you know, watchdogs about, oh, this seems like an appropriation and this seems like another thing. And that really, I mean, that dialogue from that must kind of still translate into like what you and like the bishops were working on mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. because it's still a thing where people like to point fingers. And I actually went into it not having a solid opinion about it because I just heard that it had happened and I just kind of wanted to get everyone inside of it. Um, and I think I had read... Did they maybe write a letter to Banana Fish or something about it? I, I don't know where... They did air like kind of their side of that story, didn't they? I'm not sure whether they did or not, actually. I, but I you mean, know them well enough that you can maybe speak to what they... Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, it was definitely a tribute. And Oh, uh, yeah, and it was a honor. tribute. Yeah, but, yeah. And, uh, but... It, it, I don't know exactly what I mean I think like maybe the dressing up might have been part of it that like really like went over the edge for some people mm-hmm. uh, which I mean I guess it's like you know I, you could just see in different situations like something that you take personally and someone else like seems to take as a joke in your mind then it could go to the point where you're just like, yeah, that's not that's not cool. I know how that works, yeah. and things do get exaggerated, and like you said, it was of the times. I think the mm-hmm. early 90s was very different than even the late 90s, mm-hmm. even in the in the Bay Area, maybe especially, because people right. are people moved here from all over the place and, and adopted this sort of you know, sometimes outlandish PC philosophies that, that went against even all logic, you know. Right, um, right. And we're still suffering from some of that, but, you know, you, you always have that coming in and out, and the Bay Area mm-hmm. is famous for that. Yeah, people just kind of come here and I, I discover themselves and become like... Or reinvent more, themselves. Or yeah. become mega militant about whatever their niche thing is. Mm-hmm. Um, Apparently in, in 1994 when the Heavenly Ten Stems uh, fiasco went down, I mean, that was, it was, you know, a, a group of Chinese students and others uh, that, that took it personally. And, and I think it was misinformed and, and uh, certainly... Malintention, in my opinion, because you don't—that's not the way to start a dialogue. No, it's not, and it's sort of like a thing where it's kind of a forgotten thing at this point, except for maybe those of us that were kind of around it and like yeah, still yeah. remember that thing. I don't think people think about that. No, no, at all. they ceased operations immediately. Yeah, they, you know, and Brentley was in that. Brentley was in that. So when you guys started Nungpak, did he did he have any sort of thoughts like, oh, we better? Make sure we're not like we're not going to dress up and we're not going to do anything like that. No, not at all. It was just like, well, we'll, we'll do everything we want, but we'll wear bulletproof vests <laughs> and we'll protect the uh, the gear with plastic. No, we were ready for that actually, and we were we had talked about it. Like, well, we're you know because like let's back up and explain what Nungpak was. So, so coming out of Blanapaz, which was like sort of like this experimental art rock kind of thing. <laughs>
Well, we had a band. We did. A, there's like uh, don't we still things. have a band? Aren't you know, we on in about two hours? Yeah, I don't know if we you can really... We don't want to give away the trade secrets. But actually, the other thing that's weird about you and I is we're also birthday buddies. We that's the right. same birthday. That's correct. But we also have a band called... Uh, peak Hours and the Nighttime Minutes. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, that's how active it is that I forgot the name of it. Well, I mean... That was like also like funnier like six years ago when I came up with it. And maybe peak it's, it's more retro than anything now. It is because, very retro. I mean, who thinks about Peak Hours anymore? No, it's know? like it's like a band called The Calling Cards or something. Right, or, or The Pagers. Or the, well, what is the thing that, the, that used to... The scam thing people used to pull in the 90s that would, that you'd hold up to the phone and it could do the, the, the dial tones for you? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, oh, you can hold it up to pay phones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would like work on pay phones. You and like, you'd get free calls. You get free calls. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I used that a couple something. of times. Yeah. Nice. Oh, old technology. Yeah. <laughs> we were kind of getting into some conspiracy stuff before we even got into this stuff. But mm. Oh, that also reminds me of White Ring. Mm. We should talk about that for Yeah, a the White Ring. Yeah. The White yeah. Ring, because that was kind of a monopause-related thing. There was a point where monopause uh, was doing three different acts. We, we were doing <laughs> monopause... And we were doing uh, Nung Pak, and uh, we were doing something called The White Ring, which uh, debuted before 9-11. Oh, we did it? Okay, uh, I, I think, think it was about after. April of 2001. Okay. Um, the White Ring were, uh, well, we all met in the Gulf War. We're Gulf right. War veterans, and, uh, you know, we had a common interest, and that interest was music. We would play, uh, uh, you know, to, to the troops. And, um, it's kind of like the monks. That's like how the monks Sort of like started. the monks, but like we had Germany, a, a yeah. bit of a different philosophy. We were, you know, you know, big supporters of, the, of, of all mm-hmm. wars, really. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, we drove war, nicer vehicles than most of you guys did. And, yeah. you know, we played golf on Sunday. We're just like anybody else after church, of course. Actually, I think I remember the, the, the thing I remember most about it was like one show, I think it was maybe a Heckos, was, uh, I think... Someone came, uh, you had a singer, and she was a survivor of an attempted abortion. That's right. That's right. And that might have been... No, that was our pro-life yeah, uh, yeah. phase, where we did a few tracks. Uh, one of them made it to the stage. That was the... She was a survivor of an abortion. I mean, she didn't survive that well, but she yeah. uh, she was pretty again after yeah. years of... of uh, Reconstructive. Reconstructive. Uh, which, I mean, that stuff's come a long way. Yeah. They can... Put oh, yeah, yeah. Face on a, you know, you take some bath salts, you eat somebody's face, you get yeah. a new face. Oh, my God. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> the, there was that, that was before 9 11. But after 9 11, we were galvanized, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just by our patriotism alone and, and uh, able to try to spread the message to this, this Bay Area that was really kind of down oh. on the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a, it was a good message. Yeah, um, you made a video, as I recall, that we showed on Burn My Eye. That's right. I submitted it was, that video, and uh, it was about uh, it was about Tips Project uh, the, for Homeland Security. Yeah. We were we were, you know, huge proponents of that, and, and trying to. Uh, I mean, basically, it's like you know, if you have an in like we do to the kind of well, we were part of the indie Christian scene of the early nineties mm-hmm, here, mm-hmm. big scene, yeah. And um, it was great. And, and who were some other bands in that scene? Oh, uh, you had Elder Weldon. You had. Okay. Uh, there was uh, It's All God. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember them. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a burgeoning scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and those uh, shows... So you guys were part of that scene. We were part of that scene, and that kind of graduated uh, into, you know, what we became after that, which was the White Ring. And, uh, you know, we, we had a good message, and... Uh, 
I think that message uh, was conveyed, and we we were able to. We did a 9/11 commemorative show uh, on the first anniversary of, of 9/11, and we invited the mayor of San Francisco, and uh, it was re- on the register as, as uh, uh, you know, vets were going to show up and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We we, uh, we showed up in a limo. We had to leave pretty quick. Uh, uh, where was that? It was at a it was at a liberal art gallery in San oh, Francisco, okay. and we thought that would be the best place to take this message. Right. Back at home, David of the White Ring offers a personal perspective on total information awareness. You know, ever since we came back from the war, if we're not touring, I drive taxi in San Francisco, and this allows me to do two things. One is that I'm able to give the word of the Lord to the people. Two is I'm able to look at it, the suspicious activity that's going on, especially since 9-11. I mean, you look around San Francisco, and we're talking about a haven for potential terror. Yes, taking Homeland Security into your own hands is a 24-hour business, employing any citizen, anytime, anywhere. But yeah, so we, we had a video about, you know, kind of like telling on your friends if you see something suspicious. Right. and If you see something, say something. Yeah, that kind of thing, yeah, yeah. But we were the innovators of that. Oh, right, yeah. And um, we, you know, we, we turned in a lot of friends. Because Homeland Security equals uninformed, proactive citizenry. Uh, Ning Pak, you guys were playing a specifically, what was it specifically that you were playing? Southeast Asian Just music. all different um, countries. Yeah, different it was after a, a trip my brother and I had taken to, uh, to Thailand and, and Laos and, and Burma. And spent six months out there and, and taking in like the, the all of the bar bands in Bangkok, covering like the, their contemporaries who were very popular at the time. But you'd have hundreds of Asian bar bands everywhere doing this kind of stuff. And playing instrumenta- instrumentation, not like backing tracks. No, all instrumentation. Yeah, yeah. And, and then then also it was informed by the, um, the kind of hybrid folk pop that we were seeing in northeastern Thailand, like the rural country mm-hmm. music. And... You know, Monopause had been active for several years, and uh, you know, I think in a in one moment of writer's block or something, we came back and said, "Why don't we try doing some of this music? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it'd be great to take it to the stage, and people can yeah. can experience that." And the literal translation of Ningpak is Monopause, right? Yeah. It was so supposed kind of to be, yeah. Ningpak yeah. was supposed to be literally Monopause, yeah. um, Nung being one, and Pak being a short stop. Uh-huh. But we got a call uh, into Calix when we were on the station from a Thai guy who said it actually just means one vegetable. <laughs> but we were fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's still fine. It's fine. And so that was the lineup. And then like Liz was in that too. Yeah, like, Liz yeah, Albee so was the in different the later incarnation. Or... And Jason Stamberger came in. And, oh, yeah. And so the. Oh, and Tyler was the drummer. And Tyler was the drummer. Miles was the original drummer, uh, oh. Miles Stegall, and he, he was the monopause drummer. Right. Mostly. He moved to Portland, though. He moved yeah. to Portland. He's actually back this month in the oh, Bay okay. Area. Yeah. Cool, cool. And um, so, yeah, it evolved, and, and we started Nunpak in 2001, and uh, just. We just put our second album out last week. Oh, wait, and Diana was in it. Diana Hayes. That's yeah. like actually probably the most important element. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, she was not in Mono I'm like, oh, wait, who was the singer? Diana. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but she learned all her parts phonetically, right? Is that... 
We all did. You all, everything was learned phonetically. Yeah, yeah. And um, some of it we would actually check with Thai friends, or Diana's half Thai, so she'd mm-hmm. check with her mom. And uh, That's right, because she didn't speak. No. Right, that was no. the thing I found interesting. And everything was learned phonetically, and then we'd fudge it if it, you know, on stage you can't... I'd have, like, cue cards on the stage sometimes, but they'd get knocked over, so I'd just fudge yeah. it. show or something where you were playing with one of the the kind of youth bands from the Thai temple mm. in Berkeley yeah and I, those guys were ripping they were really, really good. good and I was like I've never I've been back to Thai temple a couple times but I've never stuck around I don't know when they go on they go on at like one or two or something yeah I'm not sure but uh, I found them there um, because I'd seen them play years ago it's a it's a music school that they have there so it's a rotating cast of youth that right. come in and... the Berkeley Thai temple which is now better known as a Sunday kind of restaurant at this point I mean they made they do so well with that part of it. I remember going in the 90s and it was not super well known, but I think it was also at the same time that everyone fell in love with Thai food everywhere. It's true. It was kind of like it was a coincidental I thing. don't even bother going there because you can't get a plate. You know, you can't yeah. get a seat. Well, and like my, it's weird too because I have a friend who's like, her mom was Thai and like she actually would go there 
uh, I don't think she was, I don't think she wasn't religious, but they did like, uh, when her mom died, they did like a funeral service there and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, like it's just like for some people, it's just like, oh, this is a place we actually go and like feel connected to our roots. Mm -hmm. And then to a bunch of Berkeley people, it's just like crazy place to go on Sunday after you've been out drinking on Saturday. Exactly, And that kind of happens a lot of the time. It really does. With a lot of different things. It does. It does. Great Thai food. But the, yeah, I mean, it was it was really that was our that was the last Nungpak show that we planned to do, um, mm-hmm. and that was in two thousand eight. And um, we sort oh, so of, I saw the last one. Okay. You did, yeah, yeah. We sort of ceased after that, and um, but then we made a, a, a second record, which just came out this month. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and is that you released that or uh, Abduction? Alan Bishop's oh, uh, Alan the Sunset Girls it. label. Okay. Yeah, and uh, all the releases have been on Abduction now, but well, uh, there was a seven year gap, I think, between the two records. And even going further back a little bit, I know there was like this label, Electromotive. Yeah. Was that you? That's Peter Conlon's label. That's Peter's label. label. And then that's what your stuff, the Monopod stuff came out on that, right? Yeah, some of it. Yeah, actually all of it did. Electromotive label has been going on since 1991 at least. Yeah. Um, early Bay Area days of this. Yeah. I should ask Peter. Actually, I should ask Peter about some of these things. Yeah. But I remember a little bit about that scene because I think you guys were all like... I I don't know if we overlapped because I think at that in the early '90s I was going to like shows like Gilman and stuff. Sure. I was not really. I would maybe once in a while go see like something at like Bean Vendors, which was in downtown. Berkeley, oh yeah. yeah and there yeah. would be like I think I remember seeing like Scott Amendola play to like me and my friend, pretty much. That was like kind of the vibe of that, and it was like a little bit like oh I don't this stuff's cool, but I, why is there no one here? I didn't understand how it worked. And then I think because there was a generation before me, which was like, I guess maybe you guys and like Alexa was booking shows. At the Heinz. And I would hear about those shows because my sister was up in here and it would be like, oh yeah, Mike Watt just played at this like uh, Vietnamese restaurant. Yeah. Um, it was really a charged time uh, around here, 90, 91 to about 95, I'd say. Yeah. I, I feel like I was a little bit out of the loop. I didn't really know how to find what you guys were doing. Mm. So, but it does seem like it was kind of a coherent scene. There was sort of like very bands. Like, uh, I would say like, I never got into them, but I know idiot flesh was kind of like a big band in that time period. Yeah. yeah and yeah. they would be like the band people would talk about. Mm. It was like, to me, some of that stuff was like, kind of like after Primus or after that kind of like weird East Bay, mm. there was all this funk punk, stuff going on that was like kind of mainstreamish a little that, bit yeah that was like 87 88 89 90 yeah. 91 that started i mean before that there were a lot of you know uh punk bands like in, when i was about 15 1985 so wait, when did you move to the bay area because didn't you grow up i grew up here yeah oh, you grew, grew up here. Yeah. your family's michigan um well no i have a lot of family in michigan okay, but uh my mom is a is a bay area native Mm-hmm. Oh, so we were talking about this a second ago. So there's, I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about it, but you think, so your your dad's Iraqi and your mom's Iraqi? Or? I'm not allowed to talk about that. Oh, you're not allowed to talk no, about it. <laughs> Bring them into it. But, um. <laughs> no, yeah, my, my dad is, uh, is Iraqi. He's from Baghdad. And uh, he moved to the States in uh, the early 60s. And he was living in Germany for a while. And my mom had won a uh, Del Monte food sweepstakes to tour Europe. <laughs> and uh, they met at the Kronzler Cafe in Berlin. And wow. uh, it was love. And they got married in London. And uh, he, so she's American. Yeah, she's, she's a California native. Oh wow! She won a Del Monte. Del Monte had contests like that, like like 
pe- buy a can of peaches and then you get it to go to Europe. So and- the story goes, <laughs> unless someone's bending the truth. Uh, my mom submitted this card like at eleven fifty nine p.m. the day of you know, the the day of the sweepstakes <laughs> deadline. Wow, and you might not be here if not for that. Del Monte owes me a living. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Or you owe them something. I don't know. Something. Yeah, there's some kind of symbiosis. Like you, the Jolly Green Giant. I don't know. That might not be them. And it may, I may be even forgetting, like, whether it's Del Monte or Duncan Hines or something. I'm pretty Another, sure it's like was a Big Food Co. From which back is then. funny because now it's like, yeah, those, those people are, like, probably destroying more lives now. Yeah, they're, they're, they're all Monsanto owned, you know, like, like, Yeah, totally. Um, but uh, but so you grew up in the Bay Area. You and your brother. It's just you and your brother. Yeah, I was born in San Diego, yeah. and then right after that, we moved to uh, to Oakland. Um, so you've been around for all of the stuff. Yeah, yeah. In Oakland. I was here in the early '70s, and then my parents, you know, decided to move to the suburbs, and we grew up in the Pleasant Hill, Lafayette, Walnut Creek triad over there. Right. And uh, they, you think they thought it was like a little rough to raise a kid in Oakland in the '70s? I think at that time, the word on the street here. You know, for middle class people, was get out of town and don't don't bring your kids. This is seventy two or something, right. You know, the kind of the height of like all that, like Black Panthers and yeah, things yeah. Like that. And yeah. my dad owned shops in Oakland and San Francisco, and uh, he kept those shops. But we moved out to the suburbs, and and he opened up more shops out there, and and so we we did a lot of growing up there. It was I mean, no, I'm I'm the oldest of five kids. Oh, no, five. Okay. So they all came. They were all born in in the East Bay there, and. Um, yeah. So Is everyone still in town? Some are in LA, some you know, one sister lived in Turkey for a couple of years, but she's she's in back she's moving to London. Okay. Um you know, we're all over. But uh yeah, and then we have all of our Iraqi family uh living in Michigan. They all moved to Michigan and my dad is the only one that went to California okay. because my mom was here. So Right. I think I maybe remember there was this zine that you guys did. Yeah. A Michigan zine. Yeah. And I I and they even had a C D in it. Was mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Was that all monopause music, or was it all? It was. Uh, there were a couple monopause tracks. Uh, it was basically my brother and I, and we went uh, for a wedding in late '94, and just decided to stay for six months and and stay with the cousins. Okay, and, that's maybe why I thought you spent a lot of time there. I mean, yeah. you, you weren't living living there; you were just staying there. Yeah, we would go there every year, but uh, then yeah. that time we chose, you know, to stay for six months. And monopause was, uh, you know, already a band at that point, but we just took a six month break. And uh, thought it would be good to just spend some time out there. So that that zine was called Deep North, and it was just mm-hmm. what we did, you know, out of boredom in the suburbs of Detroit. Really, we, we yeah, we made a CD uh, audio accompaniment for every page in the book. And yeah, I can still stand behind some of it. Yeah. Um, I, it's not really out and available. I'd have anymore. to dig it up. Yeah, I was like thinking, I was like, how oh, many should grab a track off that mm. for this thing? Our Great Lakes are touched upon by six Midwestern states. Before the settlers came, the Indians filled this open space. And people made their homes here from every creed and race. The Indians called it Lake Michiguma, which became Michigan. And Longfellow's Shores of Gitchigumi, from his famous poem Hiawatha, makes us feel he wrote it about these shores. You see how Gitchigumi and Michiguma sound alike? You see how Gitchigumi and Michiguma and Gitchigumi and Guma Gitchi and Michigichigumi Guma sound alike? 
You've all gone to kindergarten. So many Indians had been pushed out of the east, they began, they began to settle in this area. Lots of people in Michigan were not pleased with their prize. They saw it as a hopeless wilderness destined to be one forever. You see how constitution and constipation sound alike? At least that's the way the people of Michigan saw it when they applied for statehood. It seemed crazy. Ohio saw it another way, and war almost broke out between the two until Andrew Jackson figured out that Ohio had more settlers and therefore more votes. So he gave Toledo to Ohio. But he did give Michigan a consolation prize. Right here, shaped like a hand. You see how constitution and consolation Constipation. Sound alike? Early uh, Porist type stuff on there, too. Yeah, so how long was that a solo project? Porist uh, was started to be called Porist in 93, mm -hmm. I think, or 92, which was just anything that I did solo, multi-instrumentation. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, and you would do live shows and stuff? You know, Porist has only probably done, like, seven or eight live shows. Because it would be hard to pull off a solo thing. I guess you have to hook up a bunch of samplers or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, a I lot mean, of I it just, is sample-based now. Like the last record that I heard, right? A lot of it... Less, actually. Less, it started less, okay. as more of a sample okay. kind of outfit. But the um, the last record I did, actually the real record I did was 2006. It was called Tourist.
time to work on your own music because right now you seem to like you've got a ton of things on your plate that involve a lot of traveling and like you're running this other label and I know you've been involved with Sublime Frequencies for a long time too so it's like uh, is it hard to kind of prioritize like making your own work when you're kind of like in this role where you're enabling a lot of things yeah it can get hard because and it's the one thing I miss the most is really just doing my own stuff so it, it's been on the back burner for way too long and that's why it's taken six years to do a follow-up to tourists really but now I'm really kind of trying to prioritize it and say okay July is going to be poorest month and it's been really hard to do because of uh, there's been just been so much going on. I mean, yeah. and, and there's been a lot of travel. Yeah, maybe we should break down like what tours. yeah what your what your multiple roles are because we've got like okay so we've kind of covered some of the solo music. Then uh, like I don't remember the first thing I saw, but like when did Sublime Frequencies kind of start up? Like two thousand three. Three. So you were very much involved in like the first couple things, right? Alan and Hisham and Rick Bishop started. Uh, Sublime Frequencies in 2003, and we were all hanging out at that time and, you know, sharing ideas and just kind of thought like, wow, well, we all do a lot of traveling and obviously we all collect a lot of music and we hear so much great stuff out there, but it's completely unrepresented here. You know, it's mm -hmm. not uh, a lot of the stuff that we were hearing, like we have a um, focus on, you know, 60s, 70s, and sometimes even more contemporary stuff mm -hmm. that's like hybrid, traditional pop you know, uh, electrified and the kind of music that you, that the people listen to out there. So, right. yeah. um, the stuff you'll hear at, at, you know, bus stops or restaurants in taxis and that kind of thing. And, and that kind of came out of just, you guys are all pretty seasoned travelers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we were all traveling quite a bit yeah. and, and, uh, Alan's older. So he'd been traveling since the early eighties and collecting this stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, I started traveling in the, in the late nineties to the middle East and, uh, then to Southeast Asia and just doing repeat trips and really just getting into it. Yeah. And all the music we were hearing was, you know, and all the stuff we were taping off the radio, because that's yeah. something we all do, too. We kind of came together on that and thought, you know, we all have something to offer here, you know, yeah. as far as like, you know, completely underrepresented music that, that isn't for some reason isn't really being exported. And when, um, when you guys went well, with you specifically, when you went out to go traveling, did you know that part of it was you're going to do field recordings? Did you kind of plan that out, or yeah, just because you're a music person, like mm -hmm. I just got to find whatever music is going on in these towns, or was it more like I just got to see the world, or you know, like mm -hmm. it was both. Yeah, I really things, wanted yeah. to see the world. I really wanted to get out of here. It took me like five years to you know finally get Dude, it together. Saving money to go across the, the it used to be, I mean, it's still hard, but like I think more people just do it now. And I just remember in the '90s being like, oh, I can't imagine going anywhere on a vacation. I just couldn't imagine putting so, the money together. Yeah, and the world was a lot bigger then, too, pre-internet. Uh, right. Or, you know, new internet was, you know. Yeah, well, pre-internet, I would say, yeah, still. Because, like, I don't know how how wired up people are in some of these places. Mm. Yeah, I mean, at that time, not not too many. And, uh, and, and you know, there were still people here that didn't have email addresses mm -hmm. when I first left. But the... the Where did, was the first place you went on that trip? Then? Syria. Okay. Yeah, I just went right into it. And uh, yeah, I, I took a cassette field recorder. It was 1997. Mm -hmm. Seeking out music that you know I knew must exist, like Debka music uh, and uh, other folk music that I knew had to be different than, than what I'd heard by... Whatever know, got filtered a little bit through. Yeah, Big like filtration system. Yeah. yeah, so you know, just kind of going and checking it out and, and getting out of this country. Uh, and, you know, I mean, travel isn't that encouraged in this country still. I mean, like you're saying, people do it. But um, 
maybe even less so back then. Uh, yeah, people... I talked to someone who said like, it should be mandatory if you're an American citizen to go travel. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It will like... it will change your life if you let it. I mean, if you don't go with any humility, a lot of people come back and say like, well, doesn't it make you appreciate where you live a lot more? And it's like, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Uh, it's well, it doesn't. Yeah. I never came back thinking, thank God I live here. You know. I mean, I've never done quite that kind of thing that you've done. Like when I've been to Asia, it's always been a kind of a family thing. And so it's like mm-hmm. a little bit like a controlled thing, but like I kind of tried to, when I went to Hong Kong a while ago, I tried to like go out on my own and like find like record stores and find stuff. Sure. And it was like, I don't know what I was looking for exactly. And I was kind of thinking that there, I ended up seeing like, Oh, this is the equivalent of like the Aquarius records of Hong Kong, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily like, talking about like the music that people listen to on the street or in the case of hong kong where you're like on a subway or you're going to a restaurant they're just listening to like pop like super super pop produced pop things or like american music that gets over there too mm-hmm. um and i just kind of i i felt like with hong kong in particular i didn't know it just seemed like it was all about making money and i didn't know where the cultural things were coming in there sure. and i think a lot of places you go or also when i went to china last i was like hey did people have records did anyone make records and they thought i wanted to go to a new cd store yeah and buy new cds if you go and you go into one of those places they think like oh you're from america you want to see where we have our best cds on offer here i'm like no i want to find like cassettes or like grimy old things and i was kind of thinking about what you guys were doing i was like i was in china last summer and i'm like i started asking people i'm like hey do your parents have records or anything like maybe they probably got rid of it all yeah there was this mental and, and also like I think the government controlled so much in China that, mm-hmm. like, like who could afford to put out records? Mm-hmm. You know, only like the government could afford to put out records, and it would just be propaganda records or like something that represented, you know, the republic or something. Sure, so, sure. and and uh, yeah, and there's just a whole push towards new technology. I feel like, like I don't know if you've encountered that when you go somewhere, <laughs> and then everyone's just like. Yeah, it's like my grandma might have some of those things, but we just, hey, do you have an iPod? It's, yeah, this is really bringing up quite a bit because uh, a lot, I mean, and especially, well, I would say everywhere, the Middle East and Southeast Asia, both, um, a lot of priority is put on the new. Yeah, and so much. the old is it is meaningless. And I, you can't blame them because like they didn't get that stuff that we've had for a while. At least in China, particularly, I'm like they just want to do America better than America did. Is that right? Yeah, but like yeah, when you go to Southeast Asia, or Southeast Asia, or when I try to do research for stuff here, like when I talk to the Cambodian community about about trying to find uh, material or or the Vietnamese community, mm-hmm. um, I mean, literally, people have thrown away master tapes. They've thrown <sighs> so away crazy, and it's not it's not interesting to them anymore right it's ephemeral period yeah. and that's you know yeah you, like you said you can't fault anyone for that that's just a different way of looking at it we have a really we have a you really gotta... strong way of fetishizing and, and nostalgia and really deeply getting into stuff like mm-hmm. on on a like the, the sort of collectors here like collector's disease you know <laughs> and like you, you and you and alan and Rick yeah and, and yeah. some people are sicker than we are you know yeah. i'm like well i mean you get into like toys and comics and you know deep you know really deep yeah. do you find that elsewhere especially in a place like japan which has a similar mm-hmm. kind of 
mo you know or or they'll um, ditch they'll ditch like old recordings or anything like, in japan no they'll 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 really get into the nostalgia oh, they'll, 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 they'll be like super collectors oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Like, you know that was it in the, when they had more money i like, had a friend who just sell old levi's jeans to some guy in, mm. in japan it's just like you're like oh this is a stitching from like 1963 or something. <laughs> yeah really yeah there's a, a, you think about collector mentality yeah they they have it in japan and you can find it elsewhere you know here and there you'll, you'll find collectors in india that really get into the the old 78s and, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing, but less so. And in a country that's had a lot of wholesale destruction or, or trauma, like mm-hmm. Cambodia or Vietnam, right. I find that they it's it, oh. they will honor certain classic traditions and they lost so much of their own traditions right. but yeah. like they had these great you know great uh, singers who are who are uh, revered that, and famous oh, that's that film that you guys showed actually at that show we were talking about earlier that was so like heartbreaking that uh it was based on an actual woman who was uh you know what i'm talking about rose story satia yeah okay, the yeah, cambodian yeah. singer uh, and it was like a sort of a dramatized version of that story like they tried to force her to sing in the yeah in the that was a film by greg, greg cahill um uh, mm-hmm. that uh he's also trying to get funding for to do uh, a bigger production oh. of is the story of rose story satia mm-hmm. and uh she and sin sisamuth among Many other uh, singers were kind of at the peak of Cambodian culture, which included cinema and and, and uh, mm-hmm. a lot of output on in music and yeah. radio. And that was a period that lasted about ten years, sixty-five to seventy-five, or a bit earlier than that. Mm-hmm. And it was shut down by the Khmer Rouge. And after that, it was just the wholesale loss of culture. Yeah. Um, in the eighties, uh, when they started regrouping and, and the refugees, the survivors had you know started popping up in, in the states. Mm-hmm. And France and elsewhere, they 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 started recording in in new studios and trying to resuscitate and make you know uh, relevant contemporary music again. Right. Uh, a lot of it was imitation of the of these great singers who were murdered at the hands of Khmer Rouge. So they really idolized that and looked to that. Mm-hmm. They did some great stuff in the eighties. Uh, it's really like the forgotten decade for for Cambodia. The eighties and early nineties. Cambodian Americans. Cambodian Americans and Cambodian yeah. re- refugees. Um, a lot of that stuff I started finding at the library here in Oakland uh, in the mm-hmm. in the '90s.
of the Cambodian cassette archives release mm -hmm. and I still collect that stuff and I'm working on a second volume um, but in doing that and trying to get research uh, done and trying to find other recordings from the 80s you know I, I've had conversations with people who've thrown away entire collections of the 80s stuff because it's irrelevant the, right. 80, the 80s didn't you know it's not it's all about now and the new house material and like remixed versions of this and that and same with Vietnamese music when I was trying to do this Vietnamese comp I totally had this weird moment of that when I used to, when my old job and I had this uh, uh, intern who was Vietnamese American and I was playing some uh, really sick like Vietnamese like field recording I don't remember where I got it from I don't think it was you guys but it was he just was like walked in the room and it was like a, it was when I worked at a label so he was a music guy and he was just like you're listening to this? I'm like, yeah. He's like, this is like stuff my parents listen to. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty awesome, right? But like, he has a completely different relationship with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember growing up listening to all this, uh, they were, my parents would maybe have like these like Taiwanese like singers, like cassettes. Mm -hmm. And they were like, you know, the Debbie Gibsons and the Tiffany's of Taiwan. Sure. And I just was like, oh, this is bullshit. Like, I like the Talking Heads and, you know, the Smiths. And I wasn't, like, going to cotton to any of it. That's and now I might funny. have a different take on it. Or I should have just saved this stuff and given it to you guys. I'm sure you'd love that <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny growing up with the, with the Iraqi music, too. My dad, uh, he listened to that stuff up until I was about 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. Um so I still have his eight tracks, uh, and and uh, he had records and and tapes, and uh, he, he would get the Arabic newspaper in the mail. And uh, when I was about eleven or twelve, he stopped all of it. He threw away everything, threw away his clothes, his, and he just kind of reinvented himself as an American guy. Right. And uh, that's what you know. That's what he wanted. He wanted the American dream. And yeah. suddenly, that he had a lot of Arabic friends too. They they didn't show up anymore. We had this. Did he know, talk to you about it, or you just mm, noticed the change, like a sea change? I kind? noticed the change, but it, it came for me at a time when I really was uh, clearly not into uh, being identified as uh, as Arab American or half Arab American. Mm -hmm. um, politically, it was so charged at that time, and and I think assimilation was his deal, and it kind of fit right into me going through, you know, young uh -huh. adulthood and 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 wanting to be as American as possible because you yeah. know you don't want difference. Here, it's yeah. like America doesn't really welcome it, as much as they may say they do. It's really about assimilating here, and I think it's one of the most hardcore experiences for for all all foreigners that come here. Oh, man, I, I that actually, aren't European in yeah, origin. Yeah. I'm kind of getting a little bit of like a realization about that in a way because I work with a bunch of people that are from China yeah. directly. And I kind of feel like an asshole a lot of the time because I'm just like, I don't talk to them that much or I don't relate to them. 
and I don't know if it's, it almost is going back to this thing of like, I don't want people to think like I'm hanging out with the fobs yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Even though like it's 80% fobs where I work. And it's just like, I'm the outlier. I'm the weirdo. And it's a weird parallel thing of like, I feel marginalized again. Like I'm not in with the cool kids, but I also like have my own other thing going on, which I can't even explain it to any of them. It gets pretty meta, doesn't it? I can't yeah. even explain it to any of them. I, I, you know, just from, there's a comic book that a guy actually went to Chinese school with uh, did, which is kind of covers a lot of this stuff. It's called American Born Chinese. And it, it went through this whole thing of like, you know, being the immigrant or children of the first generation trying to assimilate um, and how you kind of almost like deny associating with other, you know, people from your background. Yeah, yeah. And like now as an adult, I also had another thing. Like I had to go to Chinese school. I don't know if you had a parallel experience. Did you have anything like that, like language school or anything like no, that? No, I didn't. A lot of my friends had to have like their parents were immigrants. Like even my friend, she went to Greek school on like Saturdays mm-hmm. or like mm-hmm. you know, you know, obviously like you know, people go to like Sunday school or Saturday school. Right. But there was just this. There was this thing. Like I would just go on Saturday to another school. Another. I'm like I have six days of school. This sucks. Yeah. And this yeah. is one where I'm in a language I don't know that well. And, like, I actually absorb a lot of Mandarin Chinese, Mm -hmm. a a ton of it, from uh, growing up around it. But I'm not really uh, well-versed in it. I can't really talk in in an adult conversation with someone in Chinese. Um, And it was always this thing of, like, oh, you're going to really regret that you're not in touch with your roots. And I'm like, I'm not even in touch with American roots, like, in Mm -hmm. a way. I was, like, trying to, like, build this other thing Mm -hmm. of my identity which is like I'm gonna be into I'm into weird music and comic right. books and like subculture and subculture, like, which felt to me like a, a good place when you're like, uh, you know, you come from that background, like just like you know you want to just create your own thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know if you've had that experience too because your dad immigrated. Yeah, he immigrated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. I mean it's it's an interesting thing. You know, I I certainly. You know, I didn't want to talk about it with people. Um, I didn't want to hear that Arabic trash. And my, you know, this is when I'm 11 or 12. It was, uh, my friends was there come a, over a lot of anti Arabic? A lot, yeah. I feel a like lot. it was like the 80s, like when like uh, 70s, like, 80s, like Back to the Future will come out, and like oh, there's these terrorists trying to get you know the plutonium. Yeah, yeah, sure. I was a little bit older. Like I was 15 when that came out, probably. And then there was because well, oh, the oil crisis was like in the late hostage 70s, crisis. hostage crisis. I got called Carter. Gaddafi, the Shah. You know, like in, all that in like Dublin. Or where, in the seventies like, in Walnut Creek Walnut and Creek? all that area. I guess now you, you, I would even think you might call that in Walnut. Creek. I think you might get called something worse. You know, yeah, I, that's I, true. Just, we'll post nine eleven. I'm, I'm yeah. sure now one of your classmates can make a call and you can be put away in Guantanamo. You know, you yeah. and your dad. Why? Well, I, I mean, like even they were like pro. I remember like maybe it was Danville or Walnut Creek when they were like pro Johannes Meserly. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they were like it's, we support Johannes Meserly, like the guy who shot. Oscar Grant. Right, and it's right. like, how can you be, if you've looked at anything on there, you can't be pro that guy, the, no I mean, matter what. There's like, no matter what your take on that issue was. Yeah, like, they're trying to send a message. I mean, it's so polarized, it's so isn't crazy, it? so crazy, yeah. But, the, you know, and I think it's when the... suburbs, the, man. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs, but I grew up in, the, in San Jose. I was, there were still, like, tons of, like, Latino people around. It was like, mm-hmm. still, like, a pretty ethnically diverse mix. Well, Walnut Creek is, like pretty white that's like a pretty white town yeah well i think it, nowadays it's probably 
when I go there, it's it's less white than it used to be for sure. I mean, uh-huh. now there there are there are Asians and Indians and affluent uh, yeah, immigrants. Yeah, like the, the, uh, the like the the affluent minority, the the aspiring, yeah, like sort of uh, aspiring towards upper middle class, like you know that thing. It's that similar to where there, we yeah. sit right now in Alameda. That's oh, the case. Oh man, yeah. Alameda is. Oh, we didn't even talk about that. We'll yeah, get there. But I, <laughs> I wanted to say. Uh, so you and your brother both had that experience. You think? Or yeah, you I'd, I'd say we both did. Um, it's kind of like the wholesale, uh, you know, abandonment of your culture is encouraged. It's not, it's, mm-hmm. there's no guidebook for it. Nobody says this is what you have to do, but you're made to feel, especially if you're my dad, somebody with a, with a heavy accent that I don't even know if he hears, uh, but he's still got it. You know, uh, you know, you're made to feel like in, unless you're doing everything in your power to try and adapt to where you are, you're not going to be accepted by most of society. So people like that tend to cling to Fox News, right-wing ideals, mm-hmm. uh, just be as white and as American as possible, and whatever their vision of that is. So uh, my teen years, yeah, definitely sub, all about subculture, yeah. right? Just Did your dad just super, that. Did, was he super conservative? Did he go towards oh, the yeah. Fox News side? Oh, yeah, he is. He still currently is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's just where he landed. That's how he interprets it. Uh, and I, okay, maybe I don't know the whole background. Like, when he left Iraq, what was the, the political situation going on there? He didn't leave for any political reason. He just left he to left travel. to go seek out the the Western dream. I think yeah. you know he grew up you know colonized Iraq. Uh, you know the British were there. Mm-hmm. Um, they looked toward America. They got British films. Iraq was a Baghdad was a tourist destination where Americans would go to Baghdad. It was okay. an exotic location. It was you know it yeah. wasn't demonized like at, at all like now. Yeah. Uh, Baghdad by the bay. We're in Baghdad by the bay, and like to the middle of a country that's like that seems right. Yeah, right. the Baghdad of the bay. Yeah, so I mean, you know, at that time he um, he went to Germany and kind of just sought out the Western life, and I think most he found of his, it. Yeah, he's, he found it. Del Monte winner. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think he just wanted to be accepted, and that's what most people do. I mean, there's a funny assimilation story. Like, if we're going to go this deep, there was in West Oakland, there was a guy running a shop mm-hmm. uh, where I was I was living in West Oakland for 20 years. And uh, the guy was Hispanic, right? Mm-hmm. He had a Filipino wife. And yeah, I walked in there one day, and then they started carrying these kind of, you know, hard shell tortillas. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, you know, uh, wow, you got tortillas in here. And he cut me off. He said, is that what those are? I have no idea. I've never, I don't know what they call those, man. Is that what they call them? And it's like, all right, man, you know, you're clearly Hispanic. And, you know, it's like, this is, I love that story because it's so typical of, right. you know, what, it what, is a little deniability, like plausible deniability. Yeah, like, I would have like, no idea what that yeah. is. That's what those yeah. people do, you know, right, that kind right. of thing. And it's just, it's like, you know, it's somehow it's really encouraged to, to abandon your, your culture in that way. And I feel like yeah. my teens were spent doing that and really kind of, you know, embarrassed of those Arabic 45s and, you mm-hmm. know, the Um and all that stuff. Yeah. But I think what happened was, and uh, if this hadn't happened, it may things may have been different. But when the first Gulf War happened, yeah, uh, my dad was running a pizza place at that time. Uh, he owned we owned a couple pizza places, and my brother and I would work for him. It's nineteen ninety, and yeah, uh, and uh, you know we're in there in Concord running this this shop, and people were coming in with T-shirts on that said "Fuck Iraq," and coming up and asking, "Where are you from?" And, you know, somebody's wearing that shirt and asking that, you know, and, and you're like, at that point, it's, yeah, right. I mean, I mean, that's the answer, right? Yeah. But they, you know what they're really asking. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my dad would always say I'm Greek or I'm Armenian or I'm Italian <sighs> and then, you know, but you can, and you can't win. But I think that's what really happened is, um, I started seeing that and, and, um, started thinking like, well, 
here we go. You know, um, Arabs are getting demonized. Uh, you know, the Gulf War is happening. I had no idea that the, that Iraq would be you know completely decimated within ten years, but uh, it started to politicize me more. Even though you know, actually, what's interesting is being part of subculture in the eighties, mm-hmm. uh, in the mid eighties as a as a young teen. Yeah, everything's like fuck Reagan and all. That yeah, stuff. but but yeah, the, it was it was fuck Reagan, fuck apartheid. You know, um, you know this and that and the other thing. I learn about El Salvador, learn about covert wars that this mm-hmm. country's fighting in in South America and. And really learn about that was part of subculture. Right, right. Like, you like couldn't be into man. weird music without yeah. without being uh, aware politically or trying to be aware politically. Well, that music was more strident and more willing to take those stands, and also in a weird way, it, you know, like that was like yeah, you would get like like crass, or you'd get people like, yeah. talking about you know animal rights, or you'd get like all these very specific. Like, yeah, punk had a lot of messages. It did going directly into it, and I know. feel like you weren't allowed to be. Uh, yeah, you just weren't going to be taken seriously if you were part of subculture and didn't have some kind of political uh, mm-hmm. context, you know, and, and and understanding. And that shifted at some point. I think that mm-hmm. you know it really being subculture became sort of being apolitical at some point. There was a turn. Okay, and uh, and that's really striking to me because I have to go back in my head and remember that if you saw someone in suburban mid eighties that dressed different, that you that already meant that they're probably listening <laughs> to this music yeah. and it, it was like a uniform of responsibility and context. I right. mean, I'm I'm glorifying it to a degree. Right, you would be able to be like, okay, this person is willing to stand out and like. But yeah. then what, that shift that that removed the political part of it from subculture mm-hmm. is. It's something a little bit depressing, you know. It's, well, what it's pretty think, depressing. How would you identify it, or what would you say it is? Because I think I know what time period you're talking about. Yeah, maybe it's it around the time like Nirvana broke, like ninety two, ninety three. Absolutely, where it just became, you know, it, it just got dumbed down, and I think mm-hmm. we've seen a dumbing down from that point on. Um, I mean, things were pretty dumb in the eighties too, but you know, that, at <laughs> right, least in a different direction. Yeah. yeah, there was kind of the prerequisite of like you have to you have to kind of be aware of this stuff, and mm-hmm. uh, and that evaporated. Let's kind of fast forward to, okay, so you knew the Bishops kind of just from, they knew about your band, or they just knew you, or like... Uh, well, I was a huge Sun City Girls fan as a kid. Uh, like, when I was 15, uh, mm-hmm. I heard their first record and, and started buying their records back in the 80s. And it seemed like they disappeared for a while, like after 88 or so. Yeah, they kind of had a little bit of a dormancy. They, they yeah. I think they were traveling a lot. Okay. And uh, they came back in, in 1990... And or ninety or ninety one ninety you know, with uh, torch of the mystics and kind of just kept going from there and got really super prolific. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a longtime fan. I finally got to see them like in ninety one and saw a lot of their shows after that. But um, what brought us together was the uh, the Nunpok show that we we did up in Seattle. Uh, we did it. Uh, Rentley wanted to book it with Alvarius B. Okay. And so we had a chance to talk and, you know, talk about travels and Burma uh, and other things. That last Elvis B record is so good. Yeah. I like that one yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, God. He's got some real surprises coming yeah. up. Oh, man. <laughs> um, but that, that's where we first met. And then, uh, you know, friendship started from there and uh, met a lot of great people up in Seattle. So, you know, the Bishop Brothers, uh, Rob Millis. Hisham Mayette, uh, you know, everybody that was to become Sublime Frequencies, um, and, uh, and that's how that started. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, and like I was saying, you were, you were kind of on the ground floor of that movement. I feel like at this point, like, I, would you call it a movement? I don't know. Can I think at this point there's like a cluster of things that kind of 
overlap in terms of what the goals are. Like, I think, like, what you guys do, there's, like, some of the Mississippi Records stuff, and then, like, you know, like, I don't know, Ian Nagoski. Yeah, right. Like, (laughs) there's this sort of, like, I think it's, like, a record nerd thing, and then this sort of anthropological interest in, like, uh, things that are just hard to find obscurity. Yeah. And, um, yeah. It's certainly accelerated in the last three years, especially. Yeah. It does feel like that. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and you, uh, would be, you would know because, like, you guys put out records and you know. Yeah, 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 it's been interesting to watch and it's interesting to see how Sublime Frequencies, uh, you know, it's been almost 10 years, so how it gets looked at as you mm-hmm. look backward uh, mm-hmm. and, and see, you know, what the relevance of it was and what the, you know, there was an urgency to it as we were, as we were starting to do it. And, well, just, uh, do you think that some of that had to do with the fact that we were in a war already and things like that? Or? Um, well, with some with some of my releases, like yeah. I did well, the, the Chubby Chubby one. Yeah, I did the which is great. Yeah, the Iraqi one. The yeah, and the and I remember Syria was a was an audio document that uh, that Sublime put out that I had done uh, based on the early trips to Syria that I'd taken, and uh, and yeah, there was an urgency in that respect for those releases, um, but also an urgency because uh, we had so many ideas and and, and had had so much music and we still do yeah. you know we uh, and and but we we have stockpiles of this stuff that we've just been collecting and collecting and uh, we were meeting a lot of great people overseas and and working out deals and and trying to figure out how to put out some of this stuff and i think the urgency came from just knowing that uh that the stuff hadn't been released and hadn't been given a life mm-hmm. and uh a, a few years ago um you know, I mean, first of all, we were we were alone in doing that, in mm-hmm. a sense, in the way we were doing it. But it, it started. I think people were influenced by that, and I think you can see it in a lot of the the other kinds, of, like the Thai music thing. You know, for instance, like we 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 did some of the we did some of the first pop Molam releases and uh, Thai pop in this in in the West. And uh, you know, you can see when people started reissuing them, they would use the same spellings that we did. And there's there's myriad spellings but possibilities right. for for these. Um, Cambodia rocks came out before. Uh, Sublime frequencies, and that was kind of something. When did that, that come out? I think it was '96. And who that wasn't? Who was it? I can't remember his name, but uh, he didn't put his name on the record. Right. Um, but it's it was one of those records that really uh, shook my world up, and mm-hmm. and uh, in that, you know, I liked music from Southeast Asia, but mm-hmm. this was really, I mean, how I'd never heard of that. I'd never heard of a of a, a vital yeah. rock and roll movement in the '60s in, in Cambodia, and that that was a great influence for me. So I know that. Sublime probably did influence people, and yeah. and uh, well, there's also something. like uh, this label and this awesome tape from Africa. Yeah, that came yeah. out. Which uh, came out recently. of a blog. A, a lot of the blogs. St- I feel like a lot of the stuff ended up on blogs. So maybe that's another way to think about it now. Like now that like CDs have become kind of a diminished mm-hmm. format, is is the stuff that you're doing? Would it there be any way to do it? Do you see a different purpose for it than just putting out records or like maybe like putting stuff up for free or like what what do you think in terms of that stuff or like putting stuff like on iTunes or uh, are you doing all that stuff or there's a lot to talk about in that area. You guys have liner notes and stuff and your stuff. We, sometimes sometimes and sometimes, yeah. sometimes we like to leave it mysterious because uh, it's or or we have to because it's still a mystery to us. We just like the music and we're not going to spend 25 years trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um and sometimes things are a lot sweeter if you leave them mysterious, you know. Right. And that—that's that could be taken any way. There's a—I mean, look, where where the world has shrunk in ten years. It's it's since we started doing mm-hmm. this on this level, it really did shrink quite a bit. And now there is there, there there there's so much information on any a lot of these artists, any of these artists, and any of these movements. Mm-hmm. Um, 
some not some some it's still you know really not that well documented mm-hmm. but others really you know you don't have to write an encyclopedia every time you release a record some people think you do it's just about an approach and it's i think mm-hmm. it's what you're comfortable doing yeah. and and i'm quite comfortable you know trying to find out as much as i can about a movement or or group so especially in a compilation but not overkilling it, not overdoing it, because mm-hmm. once you do that, you're kind of writing the Bible for that music, and, and yeah. you're writing like, you know, you're cementing it. Mm-hmm. It's not made of cement. We're not in the West here. We're talking about, and, and people say, well, you're exoticizing or any, any, any of these well, that, yeah, I mean, talks, I, right? These do are, you still get that a lot? Oh, yeah, you yeah. You get that from a lot of corners? Yeah, yeah. They're, but, like, from who? Like, that's the other thing I wonder sometimes. Like, academics? Yeah, because uh, not from the people that are in that community, right? Not Oh, not sometimes. at all. No, no, no this, thing, is, this is the thing. It's a complete... the thing, kind of like the Heavenly Tenth Them thing, in a way. Sort of like, if some other, like, at least, well, if there was, like, a Chinese person being offended by something yeah. Asian, but it's, like, also, like, I don't even know anything about this music that those guys were doing. And I'm Chinese, or Chinese-American. Right. I would have, you know, if, I, if it bothered me, I would maybe say something. But at the same time, like, then... There is a thing of like, well, you're also just an academic, and maybe you have an investment in this stuff, or maybe you don't have an investment in this stuff, mm-hmm. but you just like critiquing people, right? Right. Well, I mean, people it. are paid to talk and criticize, and mm-hmm. you know, people. It's just uh, there's a lot of guilt, and there's a lot of uh, you know channels that people think have to be you know explored to 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 present something from another country. Yeah. Um, there are no rules. There's people who say that there are rules. Mm-hmm. There are people who really believe it should be one way or mm-hmm. uh, that, it, that, that it should be handled a certain way. Um, and there are people who, who adhere to that and then go to these countries and don't have any experiences at all, actually. They, they might go to the country and, and listen, go to the Ministry of Culture and say, mm-hmm. bring culture to me. I'm in this office over here on the yeah. street. Right. right. They're not finding it in the street. Or no. Anything. And so then they're not going to hear the real deal. I mean, that's changing. That's, that's old school mm-hmm. a little bit, I think, mm-hmm. I hope. But, uh, you know, so basically it's just about presenting it the way that we feel comfortable presenting it and, right. and, and people have enjoyed it. And, uh, and we, you know, there's just no set way that, that, I, that I operate or that, that the label operates either. Mm-hmm. I think that there, each label, I mean, each release yeah. is a different animal, right, you know, right, you, right. and you treat it differently. And uh, So when did, when did the shift start happening from when it was like, for example, like, the collection of the tapes and then digitizing the tapes and sort of being a curator of that stuff to working with like an artist, like in the case of like Omar Suleiman or something, just like I'm actually going to work with a a living artist that I'm in contact with and there's going to be more of that dynamic. Well, that shift happened um, in 2006 when I, you know, I mean, I'd been a a collector and fan of Omar Suleiman's tapes for, for at that point for nine years. Mm-hmm. And I just kept it a secret, really. I shared it with a few people. You know, I mean, I just, I didn't think anybody would really like right. it. Oh, yeah, because the first time you went to Syria, did you find out about him? Yeah. He, he's, like, really popular. Well, at that, at time, that time, he was uh, only a year into singing. Oh, really? His career was a year old, and he okay. had tapes uh, that were being produced out of his village and 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 sent out uh, within Syria, you know, domestically. Um Wedding tapes, you know, like like mm-hmm. festive party songs, loud, fast, raw, mm-hmm. and it really grabbed me. I was buying so many tapes back then in Syria, and um, there are many others and many more, you know, that not just Omar, but I happen to have bought the most Omar tapes because right. I really liked that sound, and they were on the forefront of what gets called new wave Debki now. Okay, and Debki being the uh, the traditional uh, celebratory mm-hmm. dance and uh, and music. That's a good transition to talk about this. I mean, I do want to come back to the Omar thing in a second, but yeah, so uh, this is on 
this is this collection that you put together. Uh, which obviously it's a radio thing, so I have to explain what it is. It's an LP, Dabka Sounds of the Syrian Huron. Which what is the Huron? It's the Huron is a region of okay. Syria. It's in the south. Um, it also extends into Jordan and Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Debka music that uh, you know people may have first heard of Debka through Omar Suleiman and through those those CDs we released. Mm-hmm. This LP, um, this is on my newish label called Sham Palace. And, uh, yeah, Debke, uh, is, uh, you know, it's, it's employed by people all over the Levant. So there's Lebanese style Debke, Palestinian style Debke. Mm-hmm. There's Omar's brand of Debke, which is Northeastern Syrian, which is, you know, they're right up against the Turkish border near the Iraqi border informed by all of that music. Mm-hmm. This is more Bedouin, uh, informed and, uh, has a, uh, I'd say a heavier vibe, you know, than, than the Omar stuff.
like, because New Wave Death is something, it was, it was more like keyboard and kind of synthesizer stuff. Yeah, it's when they electrified the, the dub key music. So the, the traditional dub key, it goes way back. It goes way back, and they, they, they played, you know, they played it with, with hand drums and mm-hmm. medjwiz, which is the, the double reed flute, mm-hmm. um, and various other instruments, depending on what uh, what region they were in yeah. and, and what, what uh, instruments they had. But so, this is a, a result um, of you know, 15 years of collecting mm-hmm. uh, Debke music from all over the country okay. and then uh, really honing in on the southern sound mm-hmm. um, because it's it's really a, a sound that I felt like, especially after Omar Suleiman inundation, mm-hmm. you know, I, yeah. think, I think people need a, a broader context of what Debke may sound like elsewhere yeah. in the in the country. And uh, and so this is uh, a collection of artists, some of my favorite artists from, from that mm-hmm. part of Syria. That, yeah. uh, and it's called From Cassettes. And uh, and uh, discs as well. Yeah, uh, found in, in in shops there. Like uh, when they're making, have you talked to people about the production of like when they're going into it? Like what kind of production like mindset they have about making the music? Yeah, uh, I mean, I've actually I've seen some of these performers mm-hmm. uh, play parties, weddings. Um, all of these are are uh, none of them are studio recordings. They're all live. They're all, they're all from parties and weddings. Okay. And they're all right off the soundboard. Mm-hmm. Some, some were released on cassette in the late nineties, and, okay. and uh, they're they're all live, and they all they're all very varying quality. But it's mm-hmm. it's really that's one of the best best parts about it to me is mm-hmm. just kind of like the the urgency of a, of a live recording. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, some of the studio uh, some of the studio attempts, um, mm-hmm. or some of the you know, there are debut artists that, that record in the studio. Yeah, I've heard their songs live. And, it just and, doesn't really work the same. It's interesting in Syria. What can happen is uh, a wedding song mm-hmm. from a VCD, the live sound yeah, and everything, yeah. can be distributed throughout the country, and suddenly one of the songs can become a hit based on that version that they did at that wedding. Mm-hmm. So even in the middle of the song, they're shouting the names of the bride and the groom and, and that sort of thing. And, and yeah, good viral and, marketing for the bride and groom. Like yeah, that. yeah. And in, in the video, you'll see like the the family dancing, and yeah. it's you know that becomes immortalized because suddenly everyone latches on to that great song. Right. And then... In the case of a, there was a singer named Sari El Sawas. Mm-hmm. They took that song and said, "Let's produce it and let's do it in the studio." Okay. It doesn't just doesn't have the same mm-hmm. vibe and the same urgency, mm-hmm. um, you know. And so. you put out an, a record for Omar Suleiman also, right? On your on the same label, yeah. On Sh- the first record on Sham Palace yeah. was uh, was Lay Johnny, which is a song that uh, I put on Highway to Hasaki, the anthology in mm-hmm. two thousand seven. Uh, I had edited that song down from thirty minutes to three and a half minutes. <laughs> Oh, for Highway so we'll to Hasaki. Just do it for thirty minutes. Like yeah, most of their songs are about thirty to forty minutes. Okay. And uh, and so all of the all of the Omar stuff has been mm-hmm. truncated mm-hmm. Um, with his approval. And, and right. uh, you know, I mean, that's the only way to be able to present this stuff live or in the studio, right? Uh, or 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 on tape. Unless you're yeah, like unless how are you going to put like you know a couple of thirty minute tracks together on a on a release? But that's what I did for the Sham Palace release. I thought it could be good if people could hear this for the first time. Okay, as a complete thing, as is, and so Mm -hmm. it's basically one full cassette of Omar's that contains three songs, and it became a double record. When I saw, when I looked on SoundCloud, there was like a bunch of remixes of that song. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, yeah, I think people, people just been... do it on their own. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. that also ties into. I think you mentioned this. Like, you, you did you sort of were the go between or the hookup for the thing that he did with Bjork? Yeah, yeah. So how did that all work out? Bjork was uh, Bjork had become a big fan of his music through the Sublime Frequencies releases, and uh, we received a communique from from one little Indian Bjork's management oh, right, that yeah. uh, she wanted to. 
see if Omar was interested in remixing one of her tracks for that she was working on for a new album. Mm-hmm. And uh, does he do that? Though? Well, see, that's, that's the not thing. A thing that he would no, does. he didn't know. He doesn't know what a remix is. He didn't yeah. know who Bjork was. Well, that's also remix is like yeah, not part of that culture. Not at all. At all. Yeah. No. Yeah. And is hip hop big in Syria? Do people know hip hop in Syria? You know, they know it. Yeah. And they know all kinds it's of big. Western stuff yeah. from George Michael to yeah. you know Metallica to you know yeah. this is world music for them. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the. It's not big. It's it's background. Mm-hmm. You know, I think some kids in Damascus who really want to get into it, like mm-hmm. they'll make that their lifestyle, and right, you right. can see that just like Lebanon or anywhere. Right. Um, the answer was, I mean, I had to talk to to the Bjork people and say, look, I think you'd like an Arab, you'd like the Omar Suleiman sound for the new Bjork stuff. So mm-hmm. why don't we do a collaboration? Yeah. And get me and an engineer to Istanbul, and I'll get the guys to Istanbul, and we'll spend three four days there working on stuff. Give us tracks. I can't say it's going to be a remix, but uh-huh. I think it's going to be, have to be a collaboration. Well, Bjork loved that idea yeah. and made that happen. Mm-hmm. I basically, I knew that once we got it into the studio, I'd have to have a pretty solid idea of what the arrangement would have to be because yeah. so for them, they come in with yeah. songs and yeah. they're ready and they're like, you know, they, they don't really collaborate. Yeah, know? I was going to say, like, so you have, you have stems for a thing. And do they do much studio stuff? I mean, obviously... They, they do they, some studio yeah. stuff. They have a handful of studio mm-hmm. records that, that Razan, the keyboardist, actually has produced. But um, they've never tried to merge it with another, even another singer in Syria, really. You know, yeah. it's never, never. And then been Bjork done. is like such an alien kind of quantity in her own way. I feel yeah, like. yeah. She's such an out, out there person. Absolutely. And, and, and uh, you know, I got the stems for those and I started thinking about, okay, what, what will work with this? And, and uh, just sat with it and tried starting arranging it in Pro Tools and thinking, mm-hmm. like, all right, I think a, uh, an Iraqi Chobi sound would be good with this mm-hmm. song. And then I would take a live version of something I had recorded of him and tried putting her stems over it just haphazardly to see yeah, if that would yeah, sound good. Yeah. And so after forming these ideas, I brought I brought it into the studio and played them Bjork's tracks, and they were scratching their heads like, well, <laughs> like no, yeah, yeah. I, mean, like, j- I said, well, jam in this melody, uh-huh, try this, uh-huh. and then now let's do. And then took it separately and said, now do a Chobi beat, do mm-hmm. a Debki beat, and uh, and and try, you know, just kind of. Got, we 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 made it Using go somewhere. Using her as like samples, uh, or like turning her stems into like maybe some, a rhythmic element or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess we should just play that right now. Sure, let's so play. Let's play like, yeah. uh, one of those tracks. Let's play Tesla because I think that's that's my favorite. That's okay. not the hit, but it's the B side. B sides are always good. Yeah.
craving miracle. What she's all kind of notorious for doing that is like bringing in these kind of, uh, you know, like she did a record with Matmos. She just did a thing with like a couple years ago. She did something with Chris Corsano mm-hmm. and like Brian Chippendale and all these people. So yeah, she really she's does. Really good at like, reach out, and, and so she's got her finger into all these things. So, she does. Yeah. yeah, she's. I feel like, and she, and she, and you know, she didn't have to like the the way that this mm-hmm. turned out, but it, mm-hmm. she really did. Uh, so yeah, it was a really real success, and I think mm-hmm. it surprised a lot of Bjork fans. Yeah. Probably turned off some people because it's a very alien. I mean, it really sounds like a Syrian pop track and mm-hmm. an Iraqi pop track. And that was the point I yeah. uh, that I I wanted that's to. Probably that's probably what she wanted. wanted. Yeah, it seems like what she wanted. Yeah, to apparently reach out to you guys. she liked it, and, and and a lot of people just went crazy over it. Yeah. Well, so backing up a little bit, you um, you ended up after meeting him in '06. The so there was a part of the story where you met him in '06, and then and then worked on that record that came out in '07. <laughs> yeah. And then um, so there was like a lot of like editing that stuff down, and then and then how did the rest of that sort of evolved like your involvement with him well the, well, the, the I, one, right? I wasn't sure how people were going to receive that first record because for me I mean that music was really personal and, and something I you know I'd been going to Syria a lot listening to a lot of Iraqi and Syrian music and, and it was it was really not not just personal but I thought it was very alien for people you know mm-hmm. I would play Omar for people in those first nine years and some people couldn't stand it mm-hmm. you know some, some people thought it was interesting but had no interest in it really mm-hmm. and some you know very different reactions yeah uh, Chris Cohns, remember him? He was actually yeah, yeah. Uh, some somebody who really got into it, yeah. especially some of the slow jams, and uh, asked me to make him a CDR collection. And I thought, well, that's daunting because each track is thirty minutes. <laughs> but I thought, well, that's just the fire I need to actually try to compile something. So mm-hmm. I made him a CDR. Oh, so Chris, Co- we can thank Chris Cohns. You can thank Chris, aka Cones. Skullcaster. That's right for uh, sparking the uh, the editing process. So. That's right. Yeah, and uh, so I made a I made these couple CDRs, uh, and people loved them. You know, a handful of friends. And then I proposed it to Sublime Frequencies. Uh, it was a little more contemporary and keyboard-oriented right. than what Sublime were doing. Because at that point, it was mostly just kind of archival things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, 60s and 70s mm-hmm. stuff. And and um, uh, Hisham was going to be working with Group Duet uh, simultaneously. Yeah. So that was that was the other contemporary. That was happening at once. Yeah. So... Um, both of those things kind of use a lot of like phase shifty, flangey kind of sounds. Absolutely, right? yeah. yeah. That's yeah. The kind of the thing that I identified the most. It's like, yeah. whoa, they just love that phase shift. Yeah, yeah, and I do too. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so what happened is that the the record was received very well, and I made a video for Lay Johnny um, uh, using VCD material from weddings and stuff that I'd collected in Syria and stuff that I'd shot when I went to meet Omar at a at a few parties. Mm-hmm. Um. And uh, it really started getting a lot of hits, mm-hmm. you know, um, early viral type stuff, you know, in, in its own way. Very surprising. And uh, a, a year and a half later, maybe, uh, Alan and I were in Jakarta, Indonesia, and we got an email from a production company in Bristol, UK, uh, called Q Junctions. Uh, they're great. They wondered what it would take to get Omar Suleiman and Group Due live together in the UK. And that, I mean, we, that's, that was our reaction. We just laughed, you know. I was like, no, you know, I really can't, can't see it. But then, you know, the funding was There's there. There's funding in England. There's, There's funding. funding that's right. And that, the fact, that funding came from, among other people, the British Arts Council, and among other entities. 
And oh, uh, so then you met Chris Tipton when you did the London show. Right? Yeah, so he did your London show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Or, well, you probably had multiple London shows. Well, we had London shows. We had shows. Uh, you know, all over the UK. We did a UK extensive UK and European tour with Group Duet mm-hmm. and Omar Suleiman. It was insane in a bus. Yeah. And, and uh, that is what sent Omar over the top. That uh, I mean, the that, UK had, for instance, yeah. the Sonar Festival in in, in Barcelona. Yeah. That's where people like Bjork and others uh, really, really got to yeah. see Omar and what what he could pull off. I mean, we weren't sure how yeah. he could pull it off. Mm-hmm. Putting together the live shows was pretty intense because, um, again, they're used to playing thirty or forty minute versions of stuff. Mm-hmm. The stuff that they were doing by two thousand seven mm-hmm. was very different sounding than the stuff that was on Highway to Hasaki. Mm-hmm. Even I would say cheesier and more. Uh, less urgent sounding and more glossy and kind of like using, you know, English samples sometimes or like doing just kind of, yeah, just kind of a different vibe that, Mm -hmm. that I know that that's not why we were asked to, to bring Omar. So, you know, I, I ended up directing the live set and truncating it and timing it. We ended up doing these vigorous rehearsals where I proposed these songs they were saying, oh my God, we haven't played those songs in years. No, people don't want to hear that. Mm-hmm. So actually they do, you know, they really do. And, and so we kind of gave these songs that they hadn't been doing for years, new life. And, uh, and we, I asked them if they could bring the old keyboards too, because it really made a difference. And he did, and it was a little bit like, you know, what were, okay. What were the keyboards well, that they wanted to use? Or what, okay, what are the old keyboards they're doing? Well, they're, just like we were talking about out with the old, in with the new. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the 90s, you know, they were using, and they had less money, and they were yeah. using cheaper keyboards. Whatever was making its way into the Middle East, they could right. do quarter tones or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was using, um, you know, uh, Korg 01 at the time when he did Lay Johnny and uh, and older even older stuff so a lot of the drum rolls right. and stuff come from the old keyboards that's not what they wanted to sound like they that's what they sound, sounded like yeah, out just, of necessity yeah exactly and that's that's sort of like going back to that thing yeah like the people that like like threw out all their old like recordings or the ephemera like or like uh, when I told my aunt my aunt has all these clothes from the 70s from Taiwan I was like uh, you know I could probably sell those now to some like young hipster and she's like, oh, you want old clothes? And then she'll show me all these J. Crew things that she got in the last five years. I'm like, no, 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 This stuff is the stuff that's good. But, like, in their in her mind, she wants to, like, get the new, whatever, polar fleece. Thing. Yeah, yeah. So it was, like, the polar fleece of keyboards, probably. Probably, like, like the polar fleece of keyboards. Yeah. But, uh, so, we, yeah, we ended up, you know, putting that show together pretty well and timed it at an hour. And, uh, you know, it it went over really well and uh, ended up making three... Uh, four more records uh, for Omar in, yeah. in, in and the West. That whole uh, European festival circuit—that's probably was like a new thing for you too. It's not like Monopause. Did you guys ever tour Europe or anything? Nungpak tour uh, was was asked to play some great shows in Portugal, France, Belgium, uh, and the Netherlands. So mm-hmm. you know, I had oh, you had done that circuit, done that a couple of yeah. times, and uh, and. Was there anything before that? No, I think this was my intro to the the, the deep world. festival scene. Yeah. You know where it's you know maybe even Jason had done a little bit of that. Like Crack did some Europe touring, yeah, yeah. So he probably was from, and then like Liz like ended up living over there. Oh yeah, so she knows what's up over there. She did the right thing. Yeah, is she back? Though? I thought she was like living uh, in grad school. Berlin is her home, but I think she's yeah. between Berlin and Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. Um, doing doing teaching in Connecticut cool. as well. So, uh, but the you know. I think anybody with their head on straight is going to leave this country if they can. Um, and and yeah, I'm next. The, the follow-up, yeah. Actually, I'm surprised because you kind of could, well, 
you ended up marrying a UK person, so you could have probably just gone straight up to the UK, right? Could have, but there were there was unfinished business here, and mm. uh, unfortunately for her, I had to bring her here. Uh, yeah, and... she didn't like West Oakland. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're gonna we're gonna try and go. Uh, we're going to Malaysia probably, and, and Southeast Asia for six months. Oh, we're cool. scouting out a few places, and, okay. and with the eventual purpose of leaving. Permanently yeah, yeah, yeah. becoming expats uh, from the Bay Area mm-hmm. at this point uh, that have that have vacated and uh, yeah, like that guy who's got that spot in the Czech Republic, George. Well, yeah, Beringer. Yeah, I don't know if you have this. This is like a, a CD I put out of George Beringer's stuff. I think it's you know great. But, wow, thanks. Yeah, just to check out. Yeah, sure. So, Mark, great. The sound always, of a handshake. George. Yeah. Uh, birthday buddy we're on in two hours bandmate yeah. <laughs> peak hours in the nighttime minutes yeah. look out for us thanks for being on the podcast thanks a lot george yeah.